So verse number 1 of John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me hath seen the Father, and how, how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. We'll end there. We know that God will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. And I want to focus your minds on the opening verses of, these, of this chapter, verses 1 through to 3. And so please keep your Bibles open here and let us consider what the Lord has to say to us tonight. Now, the eleven disciples were deeply troubled by the news that one of their own was going to betray the Lord. During the Passover supper, when Christ stated that fact that one was going to betray Him from among the disciples, they were all disturbed at that announcement. And we find that each man in shock asked the question, Lord, is it I? They were also perplexed when once again the Lord warned Peter of his coming denial, even though Peter protested that it would never happen. Matthew records for us these words, Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And then Matthew adds, Likewise also said all the disciples. All of them were utterly sure that they would never deny the Lord. And therefore, for Christ to speak repeatedly of denial must also and did throw their hearts into deep perplexity. But the chief reason why they were so troubled, as these opening verses show us, especially verse number 1, was the Lord's revelation to them that His remaining time with them was very short. We find back in chapter 13, 
that he said to them, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Now, on various occasions, the Lord had warned the disciples that he would be taken away from them, he would return to heaven. But seemingly, his words had not registered on their minds at all, really. And on this night before his crucifixion, as the Lord said again something very similar to what he had said before, and he puts it here, little children, yet a little time, I am with you. We find that they then began to sense that his time with them was truly going to be very short. The word that the Lord uses here, a little time, or, it's just, or a little while, it's just one word in the original, is indicative of a very short time. And that, of course, is what it turned out to be. Very, very soon, the Lord was going to leave these men, and He did, although by the time He did leave them, they had learned an awful lot more, and they understood more clearly what He meant. But at this point, they just could not take it in. And it was this, therefore this news, this fresh reminder of His departure from them that actually troubled them the most. And it's in response to their troubled hearts that He now responds as we see here in these opening verses. You see, the Lord knew their hearts. That's the wonderful thing about the Lord. He knows our thoughts. He knows uh, what we think. He knows our minds. He knows what goes through our hearts uh, day by day. He knows, therefore, that there is agitation within their souls, that they are troubled deeply within their being, and therefore He speaks these marvelous words of comfort that we have in verses 2 and 3. Now, the subject of which He speaks is heaven. The word heaven is not employed in these verses, and yet that is the meaning of what the Lord said. He's speaking to them about heaven. How apt and how wise His choice of subject was as He comforts these men. Having already noted their circumstances, we thrill at the way in which the Lord brought comfort to their souls. They're in a world of darkness. The Lord has shown them that He's going to leave them. They're full of uncertainty. They're full of trouble of mind and heart and inner being. And therefore, the Lord sets before them wonderfully and very vividly the prospect of heaven. He projects their minds down the corridor of time, and He has them focus on the end of the journey, seeing themselves with Him, as we put it this way, in the land that is fairer than day. Heaven is the subject of these verses. In considering it, we are dealing with the ultimate result, you see, of the work of Jesus Christ for His people. His purpose of redemption, His ultimate purpose, the grand outcome of redemption, is that the Lord will have with Him in heaven a company of sinners saved by grace, gathered from all nations, washed in His precious blood, justified before God, sanctified by the Spirit, finally and fully, and eventually glorified and brought home 
into that blessed place. And therefore tonight I want to speak to you from these verses on that very subject of the Lord's teaching about heaven. The significance of that subject is that not everybody is going to heaven. That is not a bare bald statement without any feeling attached to it. It is a fact, but it's a serious, solemn fact. It should be a troubling fact for those in this meeting who are not saved that everybody is not going to heaven. Contrary to what, well, the secular religion of our day pronounces. And preachers say at funerals or on other occasions, everybody's going to heaven and they're all up there now, the greatest array of rascals who have ever lived, and they're all looking down on us. That's the kind of language that is used more and more and more. Because the world, even though it hates God and despises the gospel, it wants to think that there's something at the end of the journey, and therefore everybody is going to heaven. God would not put anybody into hell. My friend, I'm not saying that you believe that rubbish, but I want you to understand that if you're not in Christ, you are not on the road to heaven. You're on the road to everlasting hell. And so as we look at the subject of heaven as Christ deals with it here, we will see how it draws such a stark contrast between heaven and the hell that awaits those who die in their sins. Three very simple thoughts about what we have in these verses. Number one, there is the description. And you have it there in verse uh, number two. In my Father's house are many mansions. And that is a description of heaven in a real and in a powerful way. Let me just remind you all that the Word of God does not have a lot to say about heaven. It actually gives far more, far more detail about hell, the abode of the damned. Furthermore, in what the Bible does say about heaven, the detail is limited. For one thing, it would be impossible to convey to our minds all the glories, all the beauties, all of the wonderful experiences that will mark heaven, that place of unlimited glory and beauty. All of the Bible as we have it could be filled repeatedly with the descriptions that would be true of heaven. Then, of course, in addition to that, the Lord in His wisdom has withheld so much of what could be revealed about heaven. Otherwise, those who are His people would become utterly discontent with this old world, its darkness, its misery, its opposition to the gospel, uh, whatever you care to mention, we would be so taken up with heaven that we would not really be content at all with where the Lord has put us during our days after conversion as we travel on toward glory, and therefore the Lord has not revealed a lot about heaven. But He has revealed enough to let us understand something of what it is, and also make us yearn for it. And here, the, Lord's give, the Lord gives this description. He talks about His Father's house in which there are many mansions. In that description, there is a place 
It's called the Father's house. That is heaven, the Father's house. But he's referring to an actual place. The residence, the special, the, the special abode of God in His triune persons. And we find that when we begin to develop that by looking at Scripture, we, d- we discover that the fact that heaven is a place comes out more and more and more. For example, heaven is called a country. Hebrews 11, verse number 16, it says there the Old Testament saints, they desire a better country that is unheavenly. A better heavenly country. What marvelous terms. They show us that heaven is incomparable with any earthly country as countries now exist in this fallen world. A better country, that isn't heavenly. A better country, that means it's better than anything that there is here on this earth. Now, the earth is beautiful, and the earth has much to show us about the handiwork of God, much to attract us to see something of God's wisdom and God's power and God's marvelous glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows us all that God is in terms of His power, His wisdom, His ingenuity of a divine kind as He simply spoke everything into being. And we should never despise this old world, even though it's a fallen place and filled with so much that is contrary what God intended it to be. Yes, the world has a beauty, but here is a country, a heavenly country, And the language tells us that heaven surely is a place. Heaven is also called a city. Hebrews 11 verse 10, it says of Abraham, He looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And the thought there is that heaven is impregnable. Heaven cannot be stormed and overthrown or God Himself be brought down from His throne. You see, earthly cities are vulnerable. They will collapse. You read the history of this world and you will discover that all the great empires and all the nations that pride themselves in their power, their wealth, their prestige, whatever you care to mention, they all eventually collapse. And do you know something? That most of them implode. I mean, they collapse from within. I just heard something on radio the other day when I was out going around doing visits uh, on a Christian program, and it actually stated in that program that taking all the empires that the world has ever seen, only a few of them did not implode. Most of them, the vast majority, fell apart starting from within. But here, my dear friend, is God's city. That's heaven. Heaven is truly a place. It's called a country. It's called a city. It's also called a kingdom. Second Peter 1.11, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is the realm of the King of kings. It's marked by orderliness and victory so that the kingdom of darkness will soon be crushed beneath that kingdom concerning which there will be no end. Heaven is called a kingdom. It's also called paradise. 
Didn't the Lord say that to the thief when he was on the cross by the Savior's side? And wonderfully and, and suddenly that man was awakened and brought to a sense of his sin and cried out to the Savior, Lord, remember me. And the Savior's response was, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And Paul uses the same word there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In the verse number 2, he speaks of paradise, and then he also calls it the third heaven. All these terms make it absolutely clear that heaven is a place. It is a country, a city, a kingdom, and a paradise. But here in John 14, it is called the Father's house. It's only Christ whoever uses that term. He used it at first in John 2 of the earthly temple. You remember, he went into the temple in Jerusalem. He cleansed it. He purged it. He removed all those who were desecrating the temple and all that they were doing in that temple. It was all swept out by Christ. And he condemned them with those those striking words, you have made my Father's house a house of merchandise. It's Christ who used the term there, and now he uses it again here in John chapter 14 as he speaks of heaven, and that is significant because the Father's house, the temple in Jerusalem, was the center of worship where the Father was praised, and now the Lord transfers that name, that title, to heaven itself because, you see, heaven is going to be the place where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be worshipped eternally and perfectly. That will be the business of heaven. That will be what we will be about, the Father's business in glory, worshipping God the Father eternally and perfectly. You may remember and look to the time when the Lord was found missing by Mary and Joseph, although He wasn't missing. It was simply their own carelessness and had to retrace their steps to Jerusalem. And they found him after those three days sitting in the temple. And he said to them, right in the Father's house, wist ye not that I must be about my Father's business? You know, there are the first recorded words of Jesus Christ in Scripture, taking his humanity. Do you not know that I must be about my Father's business? And he was doing the Father's business in the Father's house. And therefore, as you think about that, what you notice is that the eventual outcome of what the Lord did in this earth as He did the Father's business is that in the Father's house above there will be gathered together a great multitude that no man can number. And they will all be safely assembled in that place. Father's house. Yes, it's a country, it's a city, it's a kingdom, it's paradise, but above all else, it is the Father's house. So in this description of heaven, there is a place, but in this description of heaven, there is a permanence. The Lord states that in the Father's house, there are many mansions. And that word mansion means abiding place. 
And we must see it that way because that's really what the Lord meant. He's not really talking about the structure or the size of the buildings of heaven, we can put it that way. And of course, we do not really know at all what will comprise the structures of glory or the structures of heaven. The word here signifies the matter of permanency. You see, on this earth, those who are the saved of God, how are they described? They are described as pilgrims and sojourners on the move. Again, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a wonderful chapter when it comes to this whole issue of learning things about the day ahead and the glory to come and that blessed place. But in Hebrews 11 verse 13, here's what we have by way of the confession of the Old Testament saints. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And yet in verse number 14 of Hebrews 11, here we have this comment. For they that say such things, uh, say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. You see, on this earth, they had no country to call their own. They were strangers and they were pilgrims. And therefore they looked forward with the eye of faith and they saw that there was a country. Really mentioned the fact that heaven's called a country. But a little more detail here. That word for country in Hebrews 11 verse 14, it means the fatherland. The fatherland. It's a lovely word. It's a word that signifies, therefore, the idea of permanency. This eternal abode or home of God called the Father's house, called the fatherland. What a precious term in a world of so much change and, and uncertainty. What a reminder of the unending ages that stretch out before the saints of God. My dear friend, eternity is stamped with permanency. The question is, will you enter into that eternal abode called heaven with all its permanency? Or will you enter into the counterpart of heaven, that other abode that will be just as permanent and unending? And I refer, of course, to the very abode of the damned. Let me tell you tonight, every human being on the face of the earth, and that includes all of us in this little gathering now, are travelers to eternity. It is either the Father's house or it is in the abode of the damned with the devil and his angels. And you've got to search your heart tonight and come to terms with this. There's no sitting in the fence. There's no in-between place. There are the two. And they're, all, they're both permanent. They're marked by permanency. And therefore, are you traveling to heaven, the Father's house, the Fatherland, or are you on your road to eternal hell? Because it is one or the other. In that description, the house of many mansions, my Father's house, in which there are many mansions, there's also a plenitude. Many mansions. And the thought there is on plenitude or fullness. In other words, heaven will provide space for all of God's redeemed. 
Now, I know that some people will come to these words about the Father's house having many mansions. There are all these romantic ideas as to what that means. But I'm showing you what it really means, showing you the fact of the permanency that will mark heaven. But there's also this matter of the plenitude. In other words, it's going to be inhabited by innumerable throngs. A great multitude that no man can number. And they come from all times, all eras, and they come from all nations, and they're all gathered home to the glory above. We read there in Matthew 8, 11, about those who will come from the north and the south and the east and the west, and they will sit down in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And you know what that is? That's a tremendous testimony to the success of the work of Christ. A tremendous testimony to the success of the work of Christ. Jesus Christ did not die in vain. There will not just be a little handful in heaven. I know that's hard to understand when you look at the world and you look at humanity and you trace history but my dear friend, the Bible tells me that in all things, Jesus Christ will have the preeminence. And I personally believe, therefore, that there will be far more souls gathered into the glory above than there will be taking that company that will be forever lost. Many mansions marked by plenitude. But you see, in this description there's also a person. Because the Lord says here that where I am, there you may be also. In the Father's house, there is the Son. And you take the name Father that's given to God the Father here, and you begin to think about the sense of the word or the use of the word Father with regard to the first person of the Godhead. And why is He called the Father in the Bible? Because the Bible reveals that there are three persons, each of whom is God. And in revealing that, it then goes on to reveal that one of those persons takes a place of being the Father in the sense of directing and controlling and planning and purposing. And then it speaks of the Son, of the Father. And it speaks of the Spirit as another person. But the whole point is, Jesus Christ is going to be the central person in this wondrous place that is described here for us in the words of Christ. What the Bible shows us is the Lamb will be in the midst of the throne. One person will be the focus of all attention. Now, why? It is Christ we know, but why? And here's the answer. Only one of the three divine persons ever became visible. That's Jesus Christ. He took on 
a visible form when he took our humanity. And I said it many a time from this pulpit, and I say it again tonight, God the Father never became visible. God the Spirit never became visible in a sense that Christ did. Only the Lord Jesus. He took our humanity. He took it on to Himself permanently. He went back to heaven in that humanity. He did not leave heaven in His humanity, for He didn't have it then. He came into the world and He took it. And He will never leave it aside. And for that reason, He of the divine three is the only visible one. And therefore the saints in glory will look upon that one person who will be the center of heaven's attention, that one person who became man, that one person, Jesus Christ, who became the Redeemer, who died, having lived for men, died for men, rose for men, rose for the salvation and the verification of the justification of His people. He did all that. Who else, therefore, would be the focus of heaven's glory? And therefore, as we look at the description of heaven, there is a person in view. That's the description of heaven. But let me speak to you a little here now about the preparation. Notice what the Lord says, I go to prepare a place for you. I want you to think carefully about those words tonight. Because the Lord is speaking here of being the forerunner of His people. He says, I go. I go to prepare a place for you. And so he is speaking here of himself as the one who goes ahead of his people as their forerunner. Now, Hebrews 6 and verse 18 refers to this, whether the forerunner is for us entered. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he means here in this verse as he talks about going to prepare a place. And that's, that's a very important thing because let me say it to you this way. What these words firstly and foremostly actually signify that the Lord is this, that the Lord has gone to prepare a place for His people by procuring for them the right to enter heaven. You see, most people when they read those words, they think that the Lord is talking about being in heaven now, and I say this reverently, and everything is being constructed or built or whatever way you want to put it. My dear friend, and you will see this tonight before I close, there's a verse that says, Come ye blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom which is prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Whenever God made all things, get this straight, He created the heavens and the earth. And so the heaven, the third heaven, the paradise, is not under construction now as I speak to you. It was made at the very beginning of time. God made the heavens plural. He made the atmospheric heavens. He made the celestial heavens. And He made those heavens where He dwells. And therefore, these words really have nothing to do with the preparation of heaven in the sense of its being built. It was built long ago. It's already ready. 
So what is this? Again, I tell you, this is the Lord saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you by going to the cross. That's the preparation that's in view here. And we've got to see this. He was on the very verge of his cross work here. He says, I go. And where did he go? As soon as he said those words just about, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And from there he went to the house of the high priest. And from there to Pilate, or to Pilate's house and Herod's house, and back to Pilate, and so on. And then out to die on the cross. And when he said here, I go to prepare a place for you, that's what he meant. He was going to do the final piece of work that the Father had sent him to do in order to open up heaven for sinners. Now, the Old Testament saints had seen that and believed that, and therefore they were already in heaven when all of this transpired. But they were in heaven because they knew that Christ would die for their sins and open up heaven for them. And they believed that, and they went into heaven when they died. You know, some will tell you that the Old Testament saints went down into Sheol, the underworld. And then when the Lord rose from the dead, He brought them up out of Sheol. It's a load of rubbish, my friend. Where did Elijah go? Up by a chariot of fire into glory. Where did Enoch go? God took him. Took him to heaven. The psalmist said about his demise and death, afterward thou wilt receive me to glory, not to the gloomy underworld, as some will try to tell you, even evangelicals, no. The Old Testament saints went straight to be with the Lord. But the whole point is, no one could enter heaven either before our Savior's earthly ministry or afterwards if He had not opened up a way into the glory above. And does Paul not teach that in Hebrews 10? Having therefore, brethren, boldness, that word means confidence, to enter into the holiest of all, by what? By the blood of Jesus. You might say that's us entering heaven in prayer and worship. Yes, it includes that, but it also includes how we get into heaven finally. When you go to die, dear Christian, how will you enter heaven? You'll go sweeping through the gates and you'll sing the old song, washed in the blood of the Lamb, for that's the only way into heaven. And therefore the Lord is telling us here, I went, or I go to prepare a place, I go to die, I go to suffer, I go to make the atonement, I go to satisfy divine justice, I go to, to pay the price for sin, and therefore in that manner I am preparing your way and your right to go to heaven when you leave this world. You know, it's a wonderful illustration of all this. And I've referred to the thief who died beside the Lord, the one who was saved. And you will know what happened there, many of you. On that day when the Lord was crucified, the soldiers came around after the command of Pilate to take them down from the cross. And when they went to the two thieves, they broke their legs. You know why they did that? Because crucifixion was a form of death. 
that left the victim struggling to get a breath. And to get a breath, on the cross they had to push themselves up whatever little distance they could because they're stretched in that, that cross or that tree or that piece of wood and their breath is difficult. And that's why they broke their legs to stop them from grasping for breath anymore. And therefore, they essentially died by strangulation as they hung on those awful crosses, not able to draw a final breath. But when they came to the Lord, he's already dead. Now take the one who was saved, the thief who was saved. He died, sorry, the Lord Jesus died before him. Remember what the Lord had said to him? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. When the Lord died, what did he say? What was his last great cry? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And his soul, the human soul of the Lord Jesus, went immediately to glory. And do you know, brethren and sisters and sinners in this meeting tonight, Jesus Christ entered heaven on the basis of his blood. I'm not going to go down that road now, but I want just to make that statement. It's clearly taught in Hebrews. He entered heaven because he had shed his blood. He had satisfied divine justice. He had become guilty for men died, and the guilt that he bore for our sakes was then set aside, and he's no longer guilty. And he went back to heaven in his spirit through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And so he's already there. And you know, whenever that thief died, to whom the Lord had said, Today shall thou be with me in paradise, when he arrived in heaven, Jesus Christ was waiting for him. Christ was already there. That means that Christ had opened up heaven for that man. He had prepared an entrance for him in his death, in his bloodshedding, in his redemptive work, in making the atonement for sin. He prepared the way into heaven for that man, especially the right that he had to go to heaven. What right did a thief, a man who committed insurrection along with his thievery, what right did he have to go to heaven? He didn't do any works. He wasn't baptized. He never got to the Lord's Supper. He dies on a cross and in the moment his body is limp and, and pale and cold, but thank God his soul is in glory because he turned and he said, Lord, remember me. And the Lord said, today. And the JWs come along and they put the comma, they misplace the comma, and they put it after today. But in the Greek it's before the word today. That's its right place. I say unto you, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. With Christ. 
Because the Lord had said, I go to prepare a place. I go to open up the way. I go to give you men the right to enter heaven. And he says the same to sinners tonight. The description, the Father's house, the preparation, Christ had prepared the way to heaven. And then in closing, the inhabitation. Because he says that he will come again and receive his people unto himself. And there's the inhabitation that one day will finally take place. And it will be all the saints. I've touched on this already. All of them will be there, and they'll be there together. He says, I will come again. That's the second coming of our Lord. And my friend, that is the great event for which the church waits. That is the great happening that every redeemed soul anticipates the coming of the Lord to take all His people, first of all, those who have died out of their graves, and those alive when He comes changed in a moment, and the whole company swept up to glory. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. Do you know that when the saints inhabit heaven, it will, as I said earlier, be to find that the Lord has everything ready. It's been ready from the moment of creation. You see it illustrated, for example, with regard to Adam. The Lord, first of all, planted the garden. Then He put the man in it. He got it all ready for Adam, and he put him in it. And you'll find other little details throughout the Bible that make it clear that everything will be ready for the inhabitation of heaven by the whole company of the saints of God. He is the bridegroom who's coming to usher his bride into the mansions prepared for them. And I referred to Matthew 25 a little while ago, that striking verse. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then it says a little farther down in Matthew 25, Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels, they are the fallen angels, the devil included. There will be angels in hell just as there will be angels in heaven, or there are angels in heaven. But the angels in hell, Satan and his host, they're in a place of everlasting fire, or will be, I should say, to be more accurate. And it says, prepared. It's prepared too. It's ready to receive 
Satan and his angels. And the souls, yea, the complete persons of the damned. Now which place is yours? Where will you be? And my friend, you've got to face that because you will be with Christ or you will be with, without Christ. I bring that back to you. Sinners want to take to themselves very often the unwarranted comfort that they're as sure of heaven as if they were there. But you are not. It is seen here that the one who describes heaven prepares the way to enter it. And that way you have never taken. That means of entering glory you have never embraced. Therefore, your eternal inhabitation of a place can only be the place called hell. This is what the ungodly don't want to think about. The horror of it. They're offended by it. To be told by a preacher, you're going to hell. Preachers who preach the gospel will see this. I've seen it umpteen times. And that's no exaggeration. As I have preached at funerals in this town of Ballymena. And as the Lord has given the grace to sound the warning note, I have seen people stand at gravesides laughing and smirking. People there shaking their heads in their hatred for what I am saying. But let me tell you, friend, it doesn't change the fact that there is a hell. And to that hell, if you're not in Christ tonight, you are going. I pray that God by His Spirit will arrest your heart, arrest your soul, and tonight you will flee to the Savior. You must take that step. Whoever you are, whatever your age, doesn't matter, that doesn't Signify it's the fact that you're lost, you're guilty, you're a sinner. And therefore you must respond to what you've heard. You must seek Christ while he may be found. And I urge you to do that this night. Soon I will close in a word of prayer. I have another meeting. Mr. Stewart is here. And he'll be glad to get along with you and and speak to you and help you. I pray that you will take that step. That this night you will seek the Lord while he may be found. And call upon him while he is near. Let us bow in prayer. Let's unite our hearts together. And O God and Father, thou dost know the hearts of all men. And I pray, O Lord, that Thou wilt take this word of Thine and bear it home. We know that the, the one who steals away the word will be busy. 
and we'll be filling minds with other thoughts, other distractions. O oh God and Father, move and paralyze the works of hell and snatch sinners as brands from the burning and draw them to the Christ of God. Hear prayer, O Lord, we pray, and answer for Thy glory and for Thy name's sake. And may the Savior move in all His power through the Spirit and bring sinners to Himself. We pray in Jesus' name. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all who are Thine tonight and forevermore.